I want to pick up uh, where we left off in the book of Revelation. If we left off in chapter 2 of the book of Revelations, and uh, just keep this in mind when we're going through this book. This book, in my opinion, is the greatest book that's ever, ever been written. It's my favorite book. It's just a fascinating book. But it's basically God's last words to men in the scriptures. And it, it deals with the unveiling of Christ and the judgment of all mankind at the end of the world. It deals with Armageddon and the return of Jesus. And uh, it deals with Christ's thousand-year reign and his, the resurrection of all men, especially the resurrection of the damned, you know. And uh, it deals with the great white throne judgment and the marriage of the Lamb and uh, where Satan and demons and all damned souls are eventually going to end up in the lake of fire. I mean, this really covers a lot of ground, and it covers thousands of years, and it's real, genuine prophecy. This is truly a prophet of God. There's no doubt about it. I don't know. I'm one of these people, I guess people get a kick out of sometimes with my stupidity, but I bought this. This is the latest one. You see this on the, on the newsstand? Okay, over there in the grocery stores, it, it, it says here, Judgment Day. It gives it the year of uh, that's coming up. That it gives the exact date and time, of where it all begins, and much, much more in terms of the seven deadly signs that are going to foretell the end of the world, and it's supposed to start this year. Okay, so look forward to that. But then you open it up here, and then what they're doing is let me just read you just a real small portion of it, where it says in this article here. The end of the world will begin to take place at 4.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on March 25th of this year in a research laboratory in Boston. That's where it's all going to begin, according to these people here. And it says here, that's the stunning conclusion of an international panel of scholars led by renowned Bible researcher Dr. Oliver Leitz, who studied portents of all the world's major religions. And then he goes on to quote from Hinduism, the Vedas of Hinduism, where he quotes something where the Sanskrit passage or text contain references to the month of March, where this is all supposed to begin. He also quotes from Zoroasterism, their sacred writings, saying that there's some quote in there about the oldest Persian text beginning with the 2000 11th word of the 2011 page, the manuscripts leading to this to the year 2011. They quote from Confucianism and the I Ching, where it basically talks about Afghanistan just going to detonate some kind of something in March. And it also, they quote from Judaism. They quote from the book of Daniel. Remember when we went through Daniel just recently, and I talked about how a rock that was cut out with supernatural hands or cut out without hands from the side of a mountain, and then it struck the foot of that huge statue. Well, I explained all that, but this, this is what this guy says. This is he supposed to be a Bible scholar? He says, Light says the passage describes a series of natural disasters, starting with the Hurricane Katrina. Where are these guys getting at? And then it also a quote from Buddhism, the sutras. They pick something out of there where this so-called Bible scholar tells of a rare plant being discovered shortly before the birth of the next Buddha. I mean, all this stuff is just bogus, okay, bogus. But what I'm saying is there, and they also quote from the book of Revelation, all right? And they quote about the third angel who sounded a trumpet, of course, and then a great star fell from heaven, and they, how they described that as an asteroid or a missile. And then they quote from Shintoism, and basically how the Japanese, if you read one of their poems, the word that they use in Japanese, they found three references to Boston. So all I'm saying is this. This is the biggest hocus-pocus, I'm telling you. And, uh, what's that? Well, it says right here, the end of the world will begin to take place at 4.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on March 25th of this year. Now, okay, now all we know is that we see this constantly. I can guarantee you inside of six months there's going to be another one just like this. But people will read this without 
even reading your Bible. People are gullible today. They, they will not take the time to read of what's happening. And if we read this book of Revelation, it's amazing the powerful prophecies in this. The people are looking here, there, and everywhere for answers in terms of the future, right? But we have it right in front of us. And just keep in mind, when we go through this chapter 2, we're only going to read that this morning, in regards to Jesus Christ addressing the seven churches of Asia. And I mentioned them last week, what these seven churches were. But keep this in mind before we even begin reading this passage in this chapter 2, that John describes the risen Christ, and it describes him in physical terms. And just to refresh our memory here, because... When he's going through these churches, he's going to be mentioning these different physical aspects of Christ during each one of these churches that he addresses. Jesus Christ is wearing a robe from his uh, neck to his feet, the white robe that basically symbolizes uh, his righteousness, his purity, his holiness, and of course points to the fact that he cannot be fully known. He has feet of burnished bronze. Burnished bronze is polished bronze. From It's polished from great friction, but, but uh, bronze always points to judgment in the scripture. It symbolizes judgment. Well, he's about to tread the world in judgment. He's going to go forth and judge unrepentant men. All right, And he's going to do it in righteousness and in holiness. And he's got this golden girdle that's around his heart, his chest, showing that all of his emotions uh, are going to be divinely restrained. He's not going to be moved with passion or pity. People are going to die. They're going to die by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions, and by the billions. They are going to die. And people look at me like I'm just absolutely insane or totally pessimistic. And all I'm saying is this. I just take God at his word. And Jesus Christ is not going to be moved by all the tears and the sufferings and the dying and the pain that's about to come upon the world because he's treading the world in judgment. So his, his emotions are divinely constrained. Even though he's a man, he's not going to be sympathetic when it comes to unrepentant sinners. They must turn from their evil ways. And then he has eyes that are flame of fire, showing that he can penetrate through anything. He can gaze right through a person's body into their soul and discern what their motives and their thoughts and their intentions and their deeds and their everything about him. He's got hair that's white as wool, pointing to his great age, to his purity, to his holiness. There's not one unwholesome thought in his mind. And he's going to judge men intelligently and righteously. Also, he has this sharp, two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. We know from Scripture that just points to his word. Okay, that his word is sharper than any two-edged sword. In his right hand, he holds the seven stars, which are the seven angels of the seven churches of Asia, which basically means he holds the churches in his hands, and these stars point to the pastors, the overseers, the ministers in that church there. All right? So I just say that briefly, because now we're going to start this you know, chapter 2 of Revelation, where he says this, to the angel, now let's keep in mind, this, this means to the pastor, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, this is his address to the church of Ephesus. Now, the church of Ephesus 
It was basically the mother church of these other six churches there, the seven churches of Asia. And it was a church that was established and founded by Paul himself. We read about that in Acts. It had a lot of history to it. As a matter of fact, it's believed that the Apostle John was one time a pastor there. And uh, church tradition says that uh, Jesus' mother Mary actually died It was buried there. Okay, and the Catholics believe that they was she eventually was assumed uh, into heaven. That's not in the Bible, but all I'm saying is that this uh, city of Ephesus had a great deal of church history to it. All right, and Jesus is addressing this church. Now, these people in Ephesus, they had a lot going for them in terms of the leadership that was there, but they also had a lot going against them in terms of the paganism that was around them. As a matter of fact, they had uh, one of the seven wonders of the world there was a temple to Artemis, otherwise known as Diana, to the Romans. Okay, this was uh, basically a goddess of fertility, all right, and there was a great deal of immoral practices that went on with that kind of religion there. All right, so you look at what Jesus is doing to this church of Ephesus, and it just is just packed full of meaning for us today. And I, I really insist upon this. I don't care what anybody else says, I would just bet anything that, that uh, these churches were in existence then, at the time that John wrote this, when he was on the island of Patmos, and they have been in, in existence all throughout church history, okay? These churches just weren't representative segments of periods of time throughout church history. These churches are in existence today just like they were in existence during the days of John. But these are their characteristics. He says in that verse 2, to the angel, to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, right, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. You see what I'm saying? He's given a description there. He holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, he says that for a reason. That can't go right over our head because if he's holding the seven stars again, what are the seven stars? The They're the pastors, the overseers. He's, in other words, he's in total control of the church. All right, but also it says here the one who walks among the seven lamps, the golden lampstands. First of all, the lampstands point to what? Who remembers? The seven churches of Asia. But now it says that Jesus Christ is walking among. The lampstands. He's not sitting there in the middle of them. He's not standing there in the middle of them. He says he's walking among them. What does that suggest to us? What does that say to us? He's here in our church. He's in our midst. Yeah, if he's walking among the seven lampstands, what does it suggest? He's taking a look at them. He's, he's correcting them, directing them. He's, he's moving within his churches. All right? Now, yeah. Which is the role of the Holy Spirit today? Right. In other words, God is not indifferent. He's not stagnant. He's just not laying there, lounging there, sitting there, doing nothing. And I'd be the first one. I put my name on top of this. Sometimes I wonder, where is God in this situation? All right? Why are things just going from bad to worse and the hell in a handbasket? He doesn't seem to be moving at all. He's as silent as a tomb. Things just keep, keep going worse. And where is he? But he's he's assuring us right here, you know what? I'm walking among the seven golden lampstands, meaning this, I am moving in my church, all right? He may not be moving where we want him to go or as fast as we want him to go, but he's moving, indicating to us, you know what? He's working through his church. He really is. I'll be honest with you, and I'll open up to you. I told you before I began this book of Revelation that I really dread going through this book. As much as I enjoy reading it and learning it and teaching it and everything else, I dread it because I I just feel the devil hates this book, and uh, he attacks me every which way but Sunday when I try to teach this thing. And I had a real apprehension, and I guarantee you, uh, over this past week, I was attacked like almost never before in my life. All right? 
and it, it just was just almost overwhelming, you know, it just his attack on me, and it just devastated me where I just feel like just so discouraged. But I feel like this, okay, I don't know what's happening here, but I've got to take it on faith that Christ is moving in this situation. He's moving. He's not indifferent, right? He has a purpose, all right? And I just have to, to hold on and trust. And I think that that's the message to the Church of Ephesus and the, church, the other churches, that I'm moving here. Right? He may not seem like it to us, but he is. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men into you. Put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Now look at what he says here because, first of all, you always see this in Jesus addressing these churches, is he always looks for something to commend them about first. He always looks for something to compliment them for, right? Always. I think any good parent could see the wisdom in that, rather than trying to discourage their children with constantly just nagging about everything they do wrong and never praise them for what they do right. That can be pretty discouraging mm-hmm. to anybody, especially you know, young children. Mm-hmm. So Jesus Christ, he commends them for a number of things first. He does this to virtually every church. But look what, look at what he's saying here, because this is a high commendation for you. I know your deeds. In other words, they are really working on his behalf. All right, they're out there doing his will. And he says, and your toil. I mean, let's face it, there's going to have to be some sacrifice, some blood, some sweat, some tears, some effort, some time, some money, some energy, whatever it is, if we are going to work on behalf of God. All right, we just do not toil for God sitting in front of the TV. And there's nothing wrong with watching TV. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But if we spend 58 hours a week watching TV and we don't have time for God, then we're not doing a lot of toil or labor for him, right? But he says, you know, this is what he's telling him, that I know your toil. And we told in Hebrews chapter 6 that God is not unjust to us to forget the love that we show towards his name and ministering and continue to minister unto the saints. So here's a church that's really toiling and working hard for Christ. But he also says, and perseverance. And interesting to me, he uses the word perseverance in that verse 2. He uses the word perseverance in that verse 3. And he uses the word endurance or endured in that verse 3. Almost like three times he's using that word perseverance. And what, what basically does it mean to persevere? Oh, man. I mean, that, that's what it, it means. It means to carry on, to continue, to endure, to hang in there, to hang tough, to keep going, to press on, to stick with it, to stay the course, to proceed, to persist, to hold fast. I mean, this is what it means to persevere. All right? Now, I can't help but believe that that is absolutely needed like never before today because mm-hmm. people are just abandoning their faith left and right. And that was predicted, that was foretold by Paul himself, that in the last days there would be an apostasy and and that before everything can happen in terms of the revealing of the Antichrist and the end of the world, the seven-year tribulation and the second coming of Christ, that the apostasy must Mm -hmm. come first. And apostasy is a falling away. People are not persevering in their commitment to Jesus Christ and their faith in him, and, and they're not persevering in sound doctrine. All right? So he repeats himself three times. Okay, persevere, persevere, and endure, which basically means the same thing. You just keep going. I mean, that's just so essential. And I'll tell you, man, sometimes you get into the, some of the biggest spiritual battles and you just feel like giving up. But you've got to just keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep persevering, whether you like it or not. And, you know, the way to persevere to me uh, 
if we are going to, to hang tough, we really have to make a concerted effort to discipline ourselves spiritually. We have to spend quality time, prime time, you know, with God every day in prayer, all right? We need to touch him. We need to connect with him in prayer every day, all right? And we need to re- read his word every day. We need to really exercise ourselves even when we don't feel like it. Otherwise, we're not going to persevere. We're going to be blown away. And he says, and you cannot tolerate evil men. Now, this says a lot. Because what does it mean to tolerate? Essentially, except what's going on. Yeah, you know what? Paul just came down like a ton of bricks. Remember what he did to that man in regards to the church of Corinth? Matter of fact, let me just read it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said this about a man who was actually living sexually with his stepmother. He said this. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not been mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though of absence in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, for the, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, what I'm saying this is Paul saying, you're tolerating this man. All right, he's living in this gross sin, this immorality that's among you, and you're tolerating it. In other words, you need to get this guy out of your church, lickety split, get him out of there, because he says, hey man, just a little bit of leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. It's going to affect you all if you do not deal with this gross, flagrant sin in your church. And these people figured that they were broad-minded, that they were loving, that they were merciful, that they were compassionate, they, they were understanding, and they let this thing go on. And Paul just comes down on them, man, and says, this is evil, get it out. Right now, now look at the Catholic Church. I'm not trying to pick on Catholics at all, all right? But it's just, it, it, they are walking around with such a black eye today. People are leaving the church in droves, just droves. And the only thing that's stabilizing the, the numbers in the church is the, you know, immigrants coming into this country, you know, who are basically Latino, that are, are filling the ranks where people are leaving. But they're leaving because why? I would say that uh, there's obviously a number of reasons, but just keep this in mind, all right? The Catholic Church made a gross mistake because they tolerated the evil that was among their midst. In other words, this misguided sense of, well, we need to be Christ-like, we need to be loving, we need to be merciful, we need, we need to be compassionate, we need to be forgiving. And therefore, they took these men who were guilty of this gross evil, this sin, where they should have gone to jail for, instead he just moved them around from parish to parish and only made things really, really bad, didn't it? All right? Now, like I said, I'm not trying to pick on Catholics. All I'm saying is that you could pick any church, all right? And if we tolerate evil, this is what happens to us. But this church of Ephesus did not tolerate this kind of stuff, man. They said, you're out of here, right? That's a quite a commendation where he said, you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles. That's very, very important because if somebody calls themselves an apostle, first of all, what is an apostle? One who sent. So how many people throughout church history, even today, come forth and they say, you know what? God has sent me. And there's people who've been throughout history who say, well, God has sent me. Right? All right? I don't care who it is. I don't care whether it's Joseph Smith. I don't care whether it's uh, Charles Taz Russell, whether it's uh, Muhammad the Prophet. I don't care. They're saying God sent me, right? So how do you put to test people who claim that God is speaking through them? How do we put them to the test? No, no, it it says, we are told in John, test test every spirit because every spirit is not of God. But how do you test the spirit? That Jesus came in the flesh. Yes, but how do you test the spirit? 
In that example, yes, it, it must be that people confess that Jesus Christ is coming in flesh, meaning that he is God in the flesh. Anybody denies that is of the Antichrist, but we must test every spirit, not just that spirit, but every spirit. So how do you test the spirit if somebody says that they are speaking for God? I'll give you an example here, all right? You've got to test it with God's word, and I'll give you an example. About a dozen years ago, I don't know if you guys remember that or not, there was a church in Uganda which actually was headed up by a renegade Catholic priest who left the church and started his own church, and it was called something like the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but he told his congregation, listen, Christ is going to return on December 31st, 1999. And after he got all these people convinced that that's what Christ was going to return, he told them to turn in all their property, all their wealth, to turn it all over to him and the church. All right? And a lot of these people started turning all their stuff over to the man. And guess what happened? When 1999, December 31st, came and went and nothing happened, people became very disillusioned. They wanted their property back. They wanted their money back. And guess what? Over 940 people ended up being killed in that through some kind of uh, mass killing or suicide or something, all right? Now, how should those people have put this man to the test? With God's word, how? What verse? We don't know the hour of the day. Exactly, exactly. In other words, Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour of my return. Nobody, all right? Not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son of Man, even Christ when he was in his humanity on earth didn't know. Only the Father only. Christ, of course, knows now. But he limited himself as a human being. But here's the thing. How many people throughout history have set dates? I mean, look at Jehovah's Witnesses. It was 19, uh, what, 14, 1915, 1916, 1917, 1922, 1923, but see, these people need to be put to the test, all right? Look what happened down there in Jonestown in Guyana, okay? There's Jim Jones. Another 900 people plus drank the Kool-Aid because of this fool, right? Now, all those people there should have put that man to the test because I'm telling you right now, it appears the man started out uh, on the right foot. He was a Presbyterian. I think he started this People's Temple down there in San Francisco, and he started ministering to the poor. And he got a lot of blacks in his community. Or, excuse me, he got a lot of blacks within his church, all right? And then he started preaching more and more of a social gospel. And one day he just stood up, and he took the Bible, and he said, this book is a hate book because it promotes slavery. And he threw it behind his back, okay? Now... I don't care if you're black or white sitting in that congregation. You need to take some discernment there and say, hey, man, uh, I'm out of here. But this guy, little incremental steps at a time, led these people down this road, and they did not test this man who claimed to be an apostle in the sense that I'm speaking for God. Right? So we really do need to put people to the test, but we have to put them to the test with God's word. Right? Not with some burning in our bosom or some feeling or some, you know, something else. We have to do it. I don't care whether it's our own denomination. We have to test what is being said by the Word of God. We really do. Well, these people did that. They tested, uh, you know, those who called themselves apostles and were not and found them to be false. But, they, but the only way you could test it is do, do they contradict God's Word? And then in verse 3 it says, And you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake. Again, like I said, it's repeated three times basically how important it is to persevere, to keep going, put one foot in front of the other because you know what, we can't go by feelings, why? 
that's obvious, man. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm telling you right now, if I went by feelings, I wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> that's all there is to it, right? You got to keep going. He says, and have not grown weary. I mean, sometimes you just feel so tired out, and so beaten down, and so weary. But you got to just keep saying, okay, you know, I'm going to keep renewing myself in the Lord and strengthening myself in Him and keep going, all right? And God will sustain me in this, that they have not, haven't grown weary. And look at that verse 4, but I have this against you, all right? Now look at look at all their good points that he pointed out, all right? Their, their works, their labor, their patience, their endurance, they test the spirits, they condemn false prophets, they hate the deeds of the, the Nicolaitans, all right? He lists these things, all right, as far as their good points. Now look at this verse 4. He says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. All right, does anybody in the Bible say lost your first love? Okay, which is left your first love, and I think that that's primarily it. Some Bibles may say lost, but it basically means the same thing. But here's the thing, too. We can leave something and not realize how important it is. In other words, let me just put it this way. Let's just say that we are running late for work, and we accidentally leave our car keys on the drain board as we're going out the door. And when we're running out the door, we lock the door behind us and run to our car and find out, I left my keys in the house. Now I'm locked out, I'm pressed for time, I don't know how to get in. In other words, you walked out, you left the most important thing behind, all right? It can happen in our relationship with Christ. We can get so preoccupied with other things and so focused on other things that we could leave Christ behind and not even know it. Look at Mary and Joseph, Jesus' mother and his uh, earthly father. It just always amazes me what happened there. They left Jesus behind, and it wasn't until three days later that they realized He's lost. I've lost him. But it wasn't like he was lost at first. They just left him because they took him for granted. We could take Jesus Christ for granted and leave him behind and not even know it. We really can. It can happen even to the best of us. If it happened to his own parents, it most certainly can happen to any of us. If we are not diligent, we can end up leaving him behind. But he says, you left your first love. Now, here's the thing. He's saying, get it back. Look at that, verse 4 or 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Now, here's the thing. How do we maintain our first love for Christ? Because this is all important. That is it in a nutshell. It is really it in a nutshell. That's what we need more than anything else is that connection with God in prayer. That is the most important thing of all, all right? Here's the thing. Look at Mary and Martha. That's a classic example to me. Martha is one who left her first love. Mary is there in the house sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she's just drinking in every word that he's saying. In other words, she's connected with him in her spirit. All right? They have this intimacy that's going on between them in their spirit, right? And she's enthralled. She's hanging on every word he's saying. She's communing with him in this in this respect. She's in love with him. She's in rapture with him. She's, she's just totally sold out to him. Now, look at Martha. Martha loves Jesus. Martha, Martha's doing all the work, right? All the works. She's caught up in the works. And then, because she's doing all the work, now she's getting irritated, annoyed, and aggravated, and gets exasperated to the point where she goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell my sister to get over here and help me with the food, the dinner, the kid dishes, or whatever. And Jesus, of course, we know today, Martha, Martha, man, you're just all upset about nothing, man. It says, there's only one thing that's necessary, and Mary has chosen the better part, and she won't be denied of it. If we do not commune with God daily, on a daily basis, and connect with him, and have one intimacy with our spirit with his, we're going to lose that first love. And it doesn't matter all the works we do, it's not going to amount to anything. Because 
That's what we have to always keep in mind. I mean, the, the Bible makes it abundantly clear, just abundantly clear as far as uh, this one spirit union. I mean, it always amazes me. It's one of the most profound things I've ever read in my life. What Paul says in Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take them away, the members of Christ, and make them a members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, The two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. All right. Now we gotta have that because that is so all important to God. Now I know that this is a borderline blasphemy to some people. They just will not agree with this at all. But you know what? We gotta we gotta be mature in our thinking. Paul tells us in the fifth chapter of uh, Ephesians that the the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife is a mystery, and it reflects the the relationship between Christ and His Church. Now most of us are men here and married. What would you say, and be on all honest, is your most important marital need? Most important marital need. Procreation. Not procreation, but I would say this, and maybe I'm the only one here, but I would say sexual fulfillment is really high on a man's list in a marriage, right? It just flat out is. Now, it's not that high for a woman, but it is for a man. Now, if you had a wife that really, really satisfied you, fulfilled you in that area of your life. Would you rather have that or would you rather have a woman who kept a clean house but didn't fulfill you in this other area? I will tell you right now, hey, I'll clean the stinking house. I want this intimacy. <laughs> that's that's just the way I feel. Now, I'm not trying to be... I think, I think I, a lot of women feel like <laughs> well, the house. Yeah. But I'm saying this, you know, I could do that, and I'm glad to do that if you will meet my need in this area. Well, believe it or not, this is the way God is, because, in other words, God made us in his image and likeness, right? And here's the thing. It's like, I'm not saying it's a need of God, but it's most important to God to have this connection with us in spirit. Amen. That's the most important thing, right. all right? That's what he looks at the most. Now, if he has that, then everything else we do, man, that's just icing on a cake. But this is what we got to understand. It's the same in our relationship with God. We have to have that one spirit connection, that intimacy with God. Because if we do not have it, he says, man, I don't care what you do. Man, you better repent of it and get back to what you did at first, your deeds at first. In other words, getting along with me. And I'll be honest with you. It's the highlight of my day, and I'm not saying that to boast. I'm just telling you, I look forward to just getting along with God all along, man. Get get away from everyone, everything, and connect with Him in my spirit because, man, I find peace there. I find joy there. I find fulfillment there. I find happiness there, that connection with God. I find strength there. I find the wherewithal to keep going, all right? But it doesn't matter all the work we do for God. If we don't connect on that level on regularly, on a daily basis, then uh, he wants us to repent of it. Right? That's what he's saying. Right? I'm not trying to torture this. All right. Look at that verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did first. Or else am I coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, here's the thing. I don't care how much deeds we do. If we lose that connection with God in our spirit, guess what? He says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Look at the situation now. This was, this was uh, uh, Sunday's Census uh, uh, Chronicles. There's a big, huge article here about this retired bishop that now works to unite the world's religions. And it goes on and on and on about how so many people are basically doing all these works in terms of benefiting humanity. It's In other words, it's a social gospel with a social agenda where they're putting man 
in the place of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing things for the poor and trying to promote peace and all these other things, but I'm telling you right now, these people are losing their connection with God. The first love. Because they don't put him first. They're putting their works before him. And when you do that, guess what? You've lost your light. That's what he's saying here. He's saying right here, man, I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand. All right? Because if, you do, we, if we lose that connection spiritually, we're going to lose our light. Right? And these people have lost their light. Now, of course, they would like to take my head off for saying it, but I'm saying, hey, man, Christ is not the center of their program. Right? They want to promote a world religion where they want to reunite everybody and they want to just have one big amalgamation of beliefs and it's all tied up in humanism. And who lost that? Oh, yeah, you know, we can see it, the devil, right? And then he says here in verse 6, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I, which I also hate. Now, this is something he also commends them, to hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, it's been speculated all over the turf as far as who the Nicolaitans were, but here's a suggestion, and I don't know if this would be true or not, but go back to the book of Acts, read, read about seven deacons, and they were all filled with the Spirit of God and wisdom and whatnot, and that was during a time when they had the Hellenistic Jews, or people, the Jews who spoke uh, basically Greek, and then you had the Jews that spoke the Hebrew. And there was a kind of divide there, because the Hellenistic Jews were kind of treated as second-class citizens. And anyway, there seemed to be some kind of prejudice that was going on in the church there in terms of who was receiving the most uh, social assistance as far as uh, ministering to the poor. Long story short, the apostle said, you know what, we don't have time to be taking care of this kind of stuff. Well, we, we need to go out there and preach the gospel. So we're going to ordain uh, seven deacons to take care of this administrative job. And one of them was named Nicholas. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if that's the same Nicholas that he, Jesus Christ is referring to here as far as the Nicolaitans, but I would say this. If it is, wow, this is a dark warning to me because, you know, you read about the description about uh, this guy, Nicholas, in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, maybe I'll just read it here because of what it says. It says in Acts chapter 6, it says this about, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on a part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food, so the twelve summoned the congregation of disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, of full of the spirit, and of wisdom, who may be put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves in prayer to the ministry of the, of the word. And a statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and uh, Procurius, and Nicandor, and Timon, and Parmenes, and Nicholas, as a proselyte from Antioch. In other words, if this is the same Nicholas, then this guy really got off in the wrong direction. Because Jesus said he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and they were kind of Gnostics, which meant this. There came a situation where people in the church, through a certain element, began to preach this. Listen, Jesus Christ died to save us. But here's the thing. Our body is corrupt. Our body is fallen. You know, our flesh, it cannot be redeemed. So it doesn't matter what we do in our bodies. It doesn't matter what we do in our flesh, as long as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now... Look at the heresy there, because it's very, very appealing to our nature. Why? Because now we can have our cake and eat it too. We want to live in an immoral lifestyle? 
Go right ahead because your flesh is not going to be redeemed anyway. It's your soul that matters. So you just believe in Christ and live however you want. Now, those are the deeds of Nick Lachins, and we have them today. I'll give you an example. I'm not trying to pick on this group, but man, they're in your face 24-7. Is he got homosexual churches? Well, these churches are filled with these deeds that where people are trying to fulfill their base nature, their lust, all right, in a way that God has forbidden. All right, but they claim to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a form of that Gnosticism or, Nicolait- or what the Nicolaitans would do. All right, but here's the thing: God did not say, "I hate the Nicolaitans." What did He hate? Their deeds. All right. So when these people come off and say, "Well, you're just hateful, you're just bigoted and intolerant, and just a homophobe, and all these other things," that's a rock right out of the bowels of hell. It really is because Jesus Christ does not hate the sinner. But he hates to sin. And we have to be honest enough to say, you know what? God said this is a sin and we need to repent of it. And I don't care what your sin is. I don't care what it is. We are all fallen men who need to repent of our sins. All right? So that's why he says this in that verse 6, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This says a lot because he's saying, He who has an ear to hear. You know, Eight times in the book of Revelation, it's going to say that. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And here it says to the Spirit, says to the churches. And eight times in the Gospels, Jesus said, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Now, here's the thing. What's so important about that, that Jesus will repeat himself over and over again? Yeah, and also this, keep this, keep this in mind. Jesus Christ said in the Gospel of John, My sheep hear my voice, okay, and they follow me, all right, that's one thing about sheep, they get in tune to the voice of their shepherd, and they follow him, all right, I read of examples where they have in, over there in the Middle East, where they, they'll have shepherds come together with their flocks, and all their flocks will start intermingling with one another, but when they finish fellowshipping with one another, and they leave, they'll just start calling out, or playing a flute, or doing something, and the sheep know their master's voice and they follow him. They all just separate because they're following that. And I'll be honest with you, I'll open up to you. There's not a day goes by that I don't touch my ears in church. And I ask God to touch my ears, open my ears, so that I could be in tune to your voice. And I'm not going to be misled by all these other voices that are out there. All right? So when he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And we got to be in tune to what God is saying here and uh, what the Spirit is saying. And, and now he says, he who overcomes. Now what does it mean to overcome? Well, yeah, it means to prevail, it means to rise above, to triumph over, to vanquish, to overpower. In other words, you know what? We do not overcome a hearty breakfast or a good night's sleep, do we? We overcome an obstacle. We overcome something that's very difficult, right? That's what it means. That there's going to be a struggle involved, that he who overcomes, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Now, the tree of life is mentioned no less than seven times in Scripture. You go all the way back to Genesis Chapter 3, we read about the tree of life there. It was a situation where God says, hey man, eat to this tree, the fruit of this tree, this would give you eternal longevity. All right? When I was in high school, you know, I used to run track and I ran a 445 mile. And I, I can't help but think, if I could eat just a fruit off of that tree of life, I probably could run a three minute mile. I mean, you know, you just feel like, you would feel like Superman. I'm just sure, I'm just sure of it. It, just, it was so conducive to longevity, to life, to vitality, to 
to vigor, to strength, you know, that type of thing. Look at us today. We're pumping ourselves full of vitamins and all this exercise program and everything. Wants People want to prolong their lives another 20 minutes. You know what I'm saying? And here, man, he's saying, I'll give you the, the heat of the tree of life, meaning they're going to live forever. And even in these people's fallen state, all right, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, he said, this you shall surely die. Well, it said... Clearly, that God had sent an angel there, a cherubim there, to guard the tree of life, lest they eat of that fruit and uh, continue to live on, even in their sinful state. All right? That's how that tree would sustain a human being's life forever, is eating that tree of life. Well, we read in the, in the last book of this revelation that there's going to be that tree of life again, and people are going to be eating of it. And that tree of life, it says it produces 12 kinds of fruit. It says 12 kinds of fruit every month, so it, it must be every month it produces a new type of fruit, right? I mean, it's just really something that's beyond our understanding, but that's what Paul says. The eye hasn't seen, nor the ear heard, nor has even entered the hearts of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Well, this tree of life is coming back into prominence when Christ comes back, or basically when the eternal state comes into being. Anyway, and that, we got to move on. I'm sorry, I'm taking a long time here. And that verse 8 says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogues of Satan. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now this is the church of Smyrna that he's uh, addressing right now. Now this is the persecuted church. All right, and he doesn't have one word of rebuke to this church, not one word of rebuke to them. But he does give them an admonition because this church is under tremendous persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. And look what's happening to us today. All right, and we all read about what's happening there over in Egypt right now with the Coptic church over there, the Orthodox Christian church. They're being uh, killed and attacked by Muslims, and it's just causing a big uh, international thing that's going on. Well, I got news for people, man. Uh, this is nothing compared to what what's coming because when we get further on when we read in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation it says this and when the lamb broke the fifth seal I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained and they cried out with a loud voice saying how long O Lord holy and true will you refrain from judging and venging our blood on those who dwell on the earth we are told, I believe, in Revelation chapter 20 that uh, one of the primary uh, means of uh, executing Christians in the last days is going to be uh, beheading, all right? I mean, all of the combined martyrs in church history for the past 2,000 years combined are not going to compare with the number that are going to die in the very near future of those who give themselves to the Christ. All right, so when he's talking about, hey, man, you've got to endure to the end, he's telling this church of Smyrna, he's saying, hey, man, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write the first and the last, who was dead and who has come to life. So he's describing himself in those terms, saying, hey, man, look at me. All right, I died and now will live forever. And if you even have to lay your life down for me, you know, you're going to live forever. You can say something? Oh. Okay, in that verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, you know? And it's not like God doesn't know. I mean, these people are going through a great deal of tribulation and poverty, and they were experiencing all kinds of poverty because they were losing their job because of their commitment to Christ, all right? And they're losing their homes or losing everything. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And they, sometimes we may feel in the midst of our circumstances that God doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't care. He's not involved. doesn't have a plan. But he says, I know your tribulation. And he says, but you are rich. So very often God will use poverty, you know, to enrich us. He will use pressure to enlarge us in our life. And that's what he's doing to these, these Christians there. And uh, he's saying, and the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. 
I mean, blasphemy is just insulting God. It's reviling God. It's, it's irreverent behavior or sacrilegious behavior towards God. It's teaching against God. But what's interesting, these are Jews that he's talking about, the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews. In other words, these people are religious people. And you go through all of history, I don't care whether it's church history or before, and almost always you will see the greatest persecution of the believers in God comes from religious people. All right? It happened during the days of Jesus, during the days of the apostles, during the days of the prophets. It's almost always the religious people who attack you before even the political ones do. And he says, in the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews or not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. I mean, that says a lot, because not only are they warring against God, these religious people, but they belong to the devil. And that's what Jesus Christ said to the religious leaders of his day. He says, your father's the devil. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so it can be very possible to be very religious and be in the camp of the evil one. I mean, that's all there is to it. He says in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now interesting thing. Back over what Jesus Christ is saying here, where he says I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich and are blasphemy those who say they are Jews but are not. The synagogue saint. In other words what he's saying here is that Jesus is aware of all these things that's happening to them and he's allowing it to happen to them for a higher purpose but who is the one responsible for their tribulation? Look at this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. In other words, the devil is the one that's behind us. Even though Christ is in total control, the devil is the one that's behind their imprisonment, their poverty, their tribulation, everything that's going on. And uh, let's face it, we are told in Acts where Paul says this, that uh, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. We are told in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We are also told that in, in 1 Peter chapter 4 when he said this, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you which come upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory of, and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this time. In other words, you know, you look at this church of Smyrna, this church has been in existence from virtually day one, and it's in existence today, all right? In the past hundred years, more people have been killed for their faith in Christ than all of church history combined, and it's going to get a lot, lot worse before it ever gets better. Believe me, that's what's coming. But he's saying he's going to test them for ten days. Now, there's been all kinds of speculations about the ten days, but what does that suggest to you? It's, there will be a period of testing, but it won't be that long. Good. It's a predetermined period of time, but it's a very short period of time, all right? In other words, uh, sometimes when we're suffering, uh, it could be a situation where it seems like if, if we don't know how long this is going to go on, it may seem like it will just go on forever. And that could be more painful than, than anything. But 10 days isn't really that long, all right? So that's what it's saying. It's a predetermined period of time, but I do not believe it's a literal 10 days. I could have been, but I don't believe it for one split second, all right? But we just finished up the book of Daniel in the first chapter where we were reading about the situation where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were enrolled in the schooling of Nebuchadnezzar. And they were being trained to be administrators in his kingdom. And they were given a certain diet to eat. And Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel didn't want to eat 
of the king's table because there was so much there that was sacrificed to idols and that was not kosher in terms of their dietary laws as Jews. They asked the overseer, Ariach, if they could be tested 10 days and just have fruit and vegetables or uh, vegetables and water. And if there wasn't any difference, then they would go ahead and eat from the king's table. And that 10 days testing, it actually made them better than anyone else because at the very end, everyone who was enrolled in the schooling could be evaluated. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were found to be ten times wiser, ten times smarter, ten times more on the ball than all the rest. And what seemed as a deprivation at first was actually really for their enrichment. It really was. So sometimes persecution, tribulation, difficulties, and trials, they're meant by God to basically to deepen us, to fashion us, to shape us, to mold us for a higher purpose. That's why he's talking about tested for 10 days. And he says, remain faithful unto death, meaning that, hey, man, some of you may even have to die in this situation, but he will give them a crown of life because he just addressed himself over here to this church as the first and the last of one who was dead and has come to life. All right? And at verse 11, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, it's like, hey, man, listen up. We've really got to be in tune to what God is saying here. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is what? Lake of fire. It's a lake of fire. All right, and everyone who is not born again in Christ is going to end up in that lake of fire. All right, there's an old saying: "Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once." You know what that's saying? Born again. Born again, man. If we're not born again, we're going to end up in a second death. All right, and believe me, it's not as some people like to believe that it's some kind of suspended state of animation or some kind of soul sleep where you're just totally unconscious for all eternity. No, it's, it's where Jesus described where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched and it's eternal suffering forever. All right, and then, now look at this church of programmum. That verse 12, it says, And to the angel of the church of programmum write, The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, Antipas my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put stumbling blocks before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teach hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now this is a very powerful message to the church of Pogramum, okay? He's addressing this church, he says, to the angel, or to the overseer, or to the pastor of the church of Pogramum, right? The one who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now, this is the way he describes himself. In other words, this two-edged sword is what? It's his word. It's Christ's word. That's how he's being defined to this church, all right? He's being presented to this particular church, and it's for good reason, because he said in that verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, all right? In other words, he, he's aware that they are in the midst of the lion's den. Now, what do you think it means when it says where Satan's throne is? He has jurisdiction over that particular, yes. particular area. Yes, and also it's a well-known fact that in Programmum, they had this huge temple with Zeus there. As a matter of fact, um, it was a very tall, huge temple that was dedicated to this Greek god, Zeus. It was supposed to be the, the highest god in this whole pantheon of gods. But it was also built on this huge hill where from the plain, it actually rose like 800 feet above the, the, the plain or sea level, right? 
where people could see this temple from miles and miles away. As a matter of fact, they had a temple of Zeus. I don't know if that's the same one, but they had a temple either in Olympus or over there in Pergamon that became one of the seven wonders of the world. All right, that people worshiped this false god. Well, that's what he means, where Satan dwells. So you better believe that Christians in Pergamon were greatly despised and persecuted because they did not hold fast to this false god, all right, Zeus. And it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast by name. In other words, the whole fast Christ's name, you know, they, they proclaimed his name in the midst of all of this paganism and this pantheon of all these different gods. They, they proclaimed Jesus Christ as being the one true God and did not deny my faith. Okay, it's Christ's faith, all right? Uh, in other words, did not deny Christ's faith or my faith. I mean, people have all kinds of faith, but, uh, you know, what do they put their faith in? I don't care if these are stinking atheists. They got their faith in evolution. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't care what it is. Everybody has faith. Right. All right? That doesn't mean everybody's saved or everybody has the same faith. Right. But he says, my faith, even in the days of Antipas. Now, uh, church history says this about Antipas. All right? You can even look it up on the, just get on the Internet, and you could uh, Google an Antipas, and you, you'll get all kinds of information about him. As a matter of fact, I even think he has a feast day. All right? That this guy... In Pergamum, when he was brought before the authorities because of his preaching about Jesus Christ, they brought him before this tribunal, and all these men on this tribunal who were trying him for his heresy, one of the judges there stood up and said, Antipas, don't you realize that the whole world is against you? And Antipas said, then I am against the whole world. And we are told that they took that poor man out, and they, they took him, and they put him in this hollowed-out brass bowl. And then they lit that uh, big, huge fire under this brass bowl, and they roasted him to death in this brass bowl. Now, here's the thing. It says this about this guy. He says, even in the days of Antipas, my witness. In other words, people held fast in the name of Jesus Christ, even when they saw this happen, realizing that, you know, this could happen to me too. So the authorities that be at that time, the powers that be, did this to Antipas as a form of deterrent, or discouragement for anyone else who would make a peep about Jesus Christ. But they continued on, even in the midst of that. So he commends them for that, right? He says, Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. He remained faithful to the end, right? And that's what we really need to do, all right? And it's not an easy thing today to remain faithful to Christ. It's just not. Now, if we want to just water down everything Christ said and have a different Christ, a different spirit, a different gospel, then that's no problem at all, all right? But if you're going to remain faithful to what Christ has said, then it's going to be tough. It really is. He says, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Twice he mentions Satan dwells, right? right? Because it was so saturated with paganism. All right? It took a lot, a lot to stand up for Christ in this society, this culture. In verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now, I wish I had a lot of time to go in this, but I don't. Go back to the book of Numbers, we read all about this Balaam. This Balaam was a Gentile prophet. He was a, a real prophet of God. All right? And he had a, quite a reputation because when he would put a curse on a people or nations or countries or whatever, I mean, it would come to pass, right? And so what happened there was there was a, there was a king of Moab named Balak, and when he saw all the hordes of the Jews that were camped by his land, he just said, man, where does Moab people come from? He just really felt intimidated by them and uh, really fearful of them. And he says, I want these people away from me, man. Their life will overpower me. So he calls in Balaam and he says, hey man, come down here and curse these people and I'll make you a rich man. 
And so Balaam told the delegation that was sent to him, he said, well, I'll go inquire of God. And then God says, no, you're not to curse these people because I've blessed these people. So Balaam comes back to the delegation and says, I, I can't do it. God said, I can't do it. So these people go back home to, to Balak, and then Balak sends a whole new delegation with more people, more influential people, and he promises them more you know, prestige and power and authority and money and wealth and everything else. He said, if you, if you just come with me. Now, Balaam makes a mistake here because rather than just say, hey, man, God's spoken on this issue. There's nothing I can do about it, so get out of here. No, he says, well, let me go ask for the Lord, as though God was going to change his mind. So he goes back to God and says, well, you know, these men are here. Should I go now? <laughs> because he wanted to go. He wanted the money, the fame, the popularity. He wanted it all. So God says, okay, you go, but you, you, you better tell them only what I say for you to tell them. All right? And he says, okay. So the next day he's on his way. Right? But God can see this guy's a double-minded man. He's looking for a way to get around what I've told him to do. He's just looking for it. So we read the story in Numbers where there's an angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, standing there in a narrow passageway with a flaming sword. And he's ready to lop off his head, but his donkey sees this angel of the Lord. And he, this donkey's terrified. This donkey will not go near this angel. So three different times this angel appears. And three different times this donkey's going off the road until finally it crushes his ball and his foot against the, the uh, the wall, and then I think the final time, the donkey just laid down because it couldn't go to the right, couldn't go to the left. Looking at his donkey, Balaam starts beating on his donkey, man, just beating on him. And now the donkey starts speaking to him. No kidding, you go back and read it. There is a dialogue that went on there, and I'm telling you, this donkey spoke no less than 40 words. Three different things he said to this Balaam. And if I were Balaam and a donkey started speaking to me, man, I mean, I would uh, immediately, whoa. You know, but he is so infuriated. He's so embarrassed. He's so mad. He's so angry and livid that he just starts speaking back. Like, this is an everyday thing. When a donkey says, why are you beating me these three times? He says, because you won't do what I tell you, damn it. I mean, he's mad. I mean, he's, he's infuriated, right? You know, and then God opens the guy's eyes. And, he, and the angel Lord says, man, if it wasn't for your donkey, you'd be a dead man. He says, now, I can see your double-mindedness. You better do what I'm telling you, <laughs> right? But still, he couldn't get around what God said. So he finally told Balak, the king of Moab, he said, look, I can't curse these people, but I'll tell you what. I'll tell you, if you give me these rewards, I'll tell you a way where they can curse themselves. Just get them involved with the Moabite women and just start seducing them with all of your, of your gods and they'll curse themselves. See, see this guy? He was a, he was a prophet who wanted a cake and eat it too. This is the guy. And, and three times he's mentioned uh, the way of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, all right, uh, the, the error of Balaam. That's what the Bible talks about as far as this man is concerned. Uh, he's mentioned right in the last book of the, uh, of the Bible. You're going all the way back to the numbers. You read about this guy. Well, there's a lot of people today who want to have their cake and eat it too, right? They want to do what God told them to do, but at the same time, they're trying to do what the devil's telling them to do. And Jesus Christ said, you can't serve two God, two masters. You're going to love one, hate the other, cleave the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And if we put money before God and we're trying to serve God as two, guess what? That's the error of Balaam. That's the way of Balaam, all right? That's that's. What Jesus Christ is saying here about uh, Balaam, who, who uh, put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. The stumbling block was, hey man, this immorality, this spiritual immorality, and people will do this for money, right? And he said to, to eat things, sacrifice the idols. So in other words, these people got involved with these pagan practices. And like I just read in Corinthians where, hey man, 
God is a jealous God, and he wants that one spirit union between us and him, and that's not going to be shared with anybody else. But there are some teachers there who were telling people what they wanted to hear in terms of having your cake and eat it too. All right, so he said he's against that. And then in verse 15 it says, So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching to the Nicolaitans. And I just mentioned what the Nicolaitans were. It's almost a, a, a derivative, an offshoot of the teaching of Balaam. In a sense that, hey man, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can sit up a storm in your body, don't worry about it. It's no big deal because it's not your body that's redeemed or saved by the blood of Christ. It's your soul, it's your spirit, right? I mean, I would like to hear that, wouldn't you? I would. <laughs> I'm just telling you, there's a real draw there. Well, that's what we're told in Timothy where Paul says, in the last days, men are going to be accumulating for themselves teachers and according to their own desires who will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear, all right? As much as I would like to tell you that, I'm not going to tell you that because I'm not going to tickle your ear. I'm going to tell you what God has said on these issues, right? And it's a hard thing, man, to swallow, but we have to do it if we're going to be intellectually honest. And at verse 16, he says, Therefore repent, or else I am coming quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Right? Meaning what? I mean, he's going to judge them with his word. He's going to bring tremendous judgment on him. He's going to speak it on him. Then he says in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, what's the hidden manna? When Jesus Christ in the Gospels, he referred to himself as the manna that came down from heaven. And, of course, there was hidden manna in the ark, remember, in a jar. But here's the thing. Manna obviously was something that people ate to sustain themselves. It was food, it was nourishment, it was really good for their bodies, it was very nutritious. And we are told in the Apocrypha book, all right, and actually I think it's in the book of wisdom, all right, now you don't have to believe we don't want it, but I, I read about where the matter was such where it almost coincided with whatever a person really enjoyed tasting. Now, I know that sounds like a stretch, but if you, you, you look at it from a different perspective, you can see uh, that it probably was true in this, in this regard. All right? The hidden manna is Jesus. And we were talking about earlier about the Church of Ephesus. If we get along with God and have that one spirit union with him, that intimacy, we connect with him, guess what? It is really something the world can't offer you. I mean, I'll open up to you. I mean, I came over here uh, New Year's Day. There's nobody here. Nobody. You know, but that little side room was open. I went in there. I don't know. I must have been in there two hours. It was like, man, I just felt so, man, I'm just so at peace. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, the world's crawling around our ears, but I found out it's such peace sitting quietly in the presence of God. It was just the most peaceful thing. And it's the highlight of my day. It really is to get along with God, right? I mean, if we do that, that's hidden manna. That's hidden nourishment. It's hidden. Nobody else sees it, right? Nobody else is part of this. All right. I mean, it's always, always nice, and it's com it's commanded of us to go and to fellowship with one another, to go to church where there's all these other people. But I'm telling you right now, I never can can get that hidden manna. When I say never, it's seldom I can get that hidden manna in a, in a crowd. Right. It has to be hidden. Yeah. Unless, unless that crowd happens to be people that are all sold out for the Lord. Right. I, I can remember the jail ministry at Lucas County Jail in Cleveland, Ohio. Those people are Catholic and Protestant, but they were all sold out for the Lord because they were there trying to help the prisoners. Before you could really feel the power of the presence of the Lord. Right, very good point. But still, I, I have maybe you know this is this doesn't apply to everybody, but it certainly applies to me. It's always better for me to be alone. 
I really crave being alone rather than being with others. But I always get with others because we're commanded to do that. Do not forsake gathering with the saints. This is the habit of some. But also you talked about how you, you know, Protestant Catholics or whatever, where they were working together for one cause. We were talking about the Church of Smyrna. I'm telling you right now, you know, we're in a situation now where you've got all this mudslinging that goes on between denominations. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and uh, sometimes people look at me and they say, you belong to what denomination, man? You better get out of that denomination. That's the horror of Babylon, this, this, that, and the other. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I've heard it all. And all I'm saying is this, all right? I believe that one of the things that persecution will do in the, in the coming tribulation period is it will get all offenses off the fence, and then it will get either people hot or cold for God, and guess what? When Christians find themselves so pressed by the world around them that they're not going to have the luxury of sitting there and saying, well, you're not of our group, so get out of here, <laughs> all right? Because I remember years ago, I'm not the type of person to listen to music, but there, there's times when I will, I will listen to music if it's saying something, if it has lyrics that have some depth to it. But I remember the, uh, the lyrics of this song many years ago that said, we were so close, there was no room. We bled inside each other's wounds. I've never forgot that lyric because I, I think that that's what's going to happen in the tribulation period where believers, I don't care what denomination you are, if you are sold out to Christ, you're going to be pressed so hard that there will be no room and you'll bleed inside each other's wounds and you won't have the luxury of uh, slinging hat and mud at each other as far as marginal peripheral beliefs. It'll be totally your connection with Christ that matters. Right, and I know I got off on a tangent there too. But here's the thing: that's the hidden man. He says, "I will give him a white stone." Anybody have any idea what that means? Well, I was reading something about this morning about back in that time, it was a white stone was used for admission to get into certain events. Well, yes, but I think also it has this connotation because here's the thing: uh, back then in their judicial system, they had this custom where if a person went to court that was basically accused of a crime, and then he was tried and he was acquitted, they give him a white stone. If he was guilty, they gave him a black stone. All right? Now, that's probably what it refers to when Christ says, I will give you a white stone. But it also means admission, right? Admission into the kingdom. But a white stone means that, amen, you're forgiven of your sins. In other words, you're coming into my kingdom. You've given me this white stone. You're acquitted of all your wrongdoing. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone. You know, that says a lot because this is a new name written on a stone which no one knows except the one who receives it. That says a lot because names mean something. The name John, it means God's gift. The name Ben, it means uh, son of my right hand. I mean, everybody's name means something. But God says, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to write on a stone. Nobody's going to know but you. Showing that there's a connection that you have with God that nobody else has. In other words, look at all the billions and billions of people that have lived on this planet, you know, from day one. And all the billions and billions of people that are living now and all the billions and billions of people that will live in the future, they are all unique in the eyes of God. They're all unique. He doesn't create people in mass. They're all unique and uniquely created for him. Every one of us has something about us that's divinely created where we have a unique connection with God that nobody else can know or enjoy or uh, go to the depths of. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It really is profound. We've got to wind this down. I'm sorry I'm over. I know I'm over. Uh, last church. Verse 18, 
to the angel of the church of Tyrathira writes, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols and I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their, her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold to these teachings, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches now this is powerful I wish we really had a lot of time you know what each one of these churches we could spend an hour on easy 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 but I'm saying okay just to just to briefly cap what this is saying to the church of Tyre Thyra it says here to the angel of the church of Tyre Thyra the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. In other words, you know, in the first chapter, John said he's something like the Son of Man, uh, someone like the Son of Man. He was flat out saying the Son of God, all right? He says who has eyes like a flame of fire, meaning he could see right through a person's soul, see right into them and know their heart, know their motives, know where they're coming from, know what they're thinking. This is the one, has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze. Again, he's going to enter into judgment with these people. All right, because of what he's going to describe here. I know your deeds and your love and your faith. Now look at he commends them. How? Their deeds are doing a lot of good things. All right, probably uh, taking care of the poor and out there doing a lot of different things as far as witnessing and whatnot. And your love, your love for him, right? Unlike the Church of Ephesus, uh, they kind of lost that. They have this love, all right? And faith, they have the right kind of faith. It's not faith in something that's contrary to sound doctrine and service. And perseverance, that, that's quite a commendation, isn't it? Look at that. I mean, what else do you want? Your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and your deeds of later greater than first. I mean, it's almost like, man, these guys got it all together. But now they're making a real big mistake because look what Jesus addresses here. Because he says in that verse 20, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, what does it mean to tolerate? I was just mentioning that earlier. What does it mean to tolerate? Anything. Well, yeah, he commended the church of Ephesus because they didn't tolerate evil men. But even though this church here, they had their first love and they have all this stuff going to them, they tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, I don't believe for one minute this, this woman was named Jezebel. All right, but she characterized Jezebel. We can read about Jezebel in the, the first and second kings, all about this woman. She was a daughter of the king of Tyre. All right, she <coughs> married the king of the northern tribe of Israel named Ahab, she led the entire northern kingdom into all kinds of Baal worship and cultic practices and all kinds of immorality. That's what this woman did. And she met a horrible end when she was thrown out of a window and uh, bounced along on a pavement and was trampled by a horse. And then, uh, you know, the dogs ate everything but her 
hands and her feet, all right? I mean, and even the dog didn't want these hands that shed blood and these feet that ran to do so much evil, right? But he said, you tolerate this woman, Jezebel. Now, here's the thing. Jezebel was preaching all kinds of idolatrous practices. Now, here's the thing. Look at what's happening in church today. Just read this here. It says, I know your deeds and your love and your faith, your service, your perseverance, and your deeds of later greater than at first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. So they commit acts of immorality. Now, the acts of immorality, sure, it could have been literal, physical, but I believe this is spiritual because didn't I just read over here in Corinthians where one who joins himself to the Lord becomes one spirit with him? All right? But if we join ourselves to something that's occultic in nature, guess what? That's an act of immorality. All right? Now, look what's happening all over the turf today. All right? There's all kinds of articles. As a matter of fact, here's a big article that was written in the paper that I think it was just last month. Yeah, it was, well, actually in November. All right? About Hinduism as far as yoga is concerned. Now, this is just an example. Okay? Yoga is basically what that means is uh, defining yoke, the yoke with God. Right? And now this whole concept of yoga has crept in with the Western garb to where they say, well, this is not religion, this is exercise, and this is meditation. And they're even bringing it into a number of churches today. But I guarantee you, if you really get through all the claptrap of what this is all about, it's really occultic in nature. And matter of fact, this whole article here was written by a Hindu who's angry about the fact that the true nature of Hinduism has been suppressed. And he's just flat out telling you what it is. All right? And then if you study yoga, I like got articles here about yoga from the internet. And basically, it's one of those things where you meditate, right? You get into that posture and you meditate, and then you start a lot of times reciting a mantra, om or whatever. But believe me, whatever mantra you start reciting, it's the name of a Hindu god. And it's what they call it kundalini force at the base of your spine and then it connects you with uh, your inner self and it connects you with the divine and basically if you just cut through everything what it boils down to is you are divine and you are part of the divine spark and that you are basically worshipping yourself alright now this has crept into the church I'm just giving you as a tiny example alright about what's happening to us and today it's even crept into the church under the disguise of positive thinking all right? That if you just think positive enough, that anything can happen. All right? Now, it's always good to be an optimistic person, which I never am. But all I'm saying is this. When you get into that, where you begin to say, I can do anything. Well, wait a minute. Christ said you could do nothing apart from me. All right? So even that can be misleading. And we even have, in this church here, what was it, last month, two months ago, whatever it was? I kept this. They had a seminar over here with this uh, pastor. He's going around, and this is what he was teaching on. It was the seminar in regards to world religions. Now, you know, I will say this. I didn't attend this, so maybe I'm being too judgmental here, but it says, Introduction to Hinduism. All paths are sacred. Introduction to Buddhism. The way of compassion. Introduction to Judaism. The word of God in your heart. Introduction to Islam. The way of peace. Oh, isn't that a... You know, so all I'm saying is this. I'm saying, you see what's creeping in? You see what's being tolerated? Yeah. All right. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to be at peace with other people's beliefs, but we can't bring them into the church and let people start preaching these things because that's tolerating this woman Jezebel. And I think it's kind of interesting what Paul says about women preaching in the church. And I know this is going to open a can of worms, too. But I'm saying this. I'm not a male chauvinist pig. 
All right, I'm just telling you what God has said. This is what God said, or this is what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, uh, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Now, he also says that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He said, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And what he means by speak, he means to preach in church, okay? Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? He's talking to the church of Corinth. Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. I want to repeat that. He said, this is the Lord's commandment, all right? But now we've got a whole segment of people in the churches and different denominations who are absolutely insisting that women be preachers. And all I'm saying is this, all right? Paul says this, if you don't recognize what I'm saying here, then we don't recognize you. If you don't recognize what I'm saying here, you've got to understand that this is the Lord's commandment. This isn't some male chauvinist pig speaking his biases, all right? And neither am I. But Paul tells us why he doesn't allow a woman to preach in church. Why? I read it in Timothy. He says, because not only was Adam created first, all right, which gives him preeminence in that regard, even though there's, in Christ there's no distinction between male and female, all right? We're all equal in that regard. But here's the thing. Paul says that it was the woman who was deceived, being quite deceived, fell into a transgression, but Adam was not deceived. Now, here's the thing. By nature, women are more emotional than men, which makes them more gullible or susceptible to error than men because they're liable to filter things more through their emotions than through their intellect, all right? Now, that's not being a male chauvinist pig, all right? People have to be mature in their thinking. Just look at the difference between male and female and the way God created men and women. And we're not equal in terms of our talents, our abilities, our resources, our strengths, and everything else. We're just not. And anybody who denies that is just denying reality. All I'm saying is this. Women are more gullible than men. Paul says, I don't want women teaching men. Because here's the thing, why, why, if Adam was not deceived, why the world did he go along with this rebellion? Because, man, Adam thought to himself, wow, you know, this isn't right, but I don't want to be without my little dump here, man. Sex is the greatest thing on this planet, and I don't want to be without it. So he went along with that. So, here's the thing. Jesus is saying here to this church of Tyre, this woman, Jezebel, you tolerate this woman. First of all, she's a woman, so now she's teaching your church, so that's a violation of what I wanted here. All right? Women have their role in the church. As a matter of fact, women are the backbone of the church. As a matter of fact, read in the Gospels, and you'll find that women are always out there in that, that role of, of giving and supporting and everything else. But God says, I don't want you preaching. All right. Now, women can go out there and preach and say, well, I'm a better preacher than him. Well, that doesn't matter to God. Are we being obedient to God? Well, they let this woman preach, and now she's preaching heresy, and now people are tolerating it because now she's teaching an amalgamation of occultic practices because Jesus referred to this woman as Jezebel. Now she's introduced into the church a type of uh, occultism. 
you know, whether whether it was something like yoga or Hinduism or Buddhism or, you know what I'm saying? And now people are being misled into this and they guess what? Now they're sacrificing to idols or things that have been sacrificed to idols because when we start getting down this road into occultism and witchcraft and all these other things, guess what? Now we're being spiritual adulterers. Now we are being immoral spiritually in the eyes of God. Now we're being adulterers in the eyes of God, right? That's what he's talking about here when he's talking about this woman. Uh, she teaches and leads my bond service. In other words, even sold-out Christians can be deceived by this if they're not discerning and if they're not informed, Right? He says, and lead my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. Remember Jean Dixon? She's been long dead now, long dead. But I'm telling you right now, she was a daily communicant. She was a devout Catholic, and uh, she was uh, up under eyeballs in astrology Mm -hmm. and fortune-telling and divination and the whole nine yards. All right, and she was warned over and over and over again that she was involved in something that was forbidden by God. God gave her plenty of time to repent, but she didn't want to repent. Why? Much money. money, fame, popularity. She had a nationally syndicated horoscope, virtually every paper in the country, right? She wrote the book, uh, The Gift of Prophecy. You know, she was she was a household word as far as prophecy. Only There's only one prophecy that even came true, and that was uh, the death of John F. Kennedy, his assassination, right? I mean, this woman was a charlatan. But God gave her plenty of time to repent, and she got plenty of warning. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to be her judge. She's been long dead. God will be your judge. But, hey, he gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. The immorality was spiritual, leading people astray. Look to the stars to guide you, right? Look to your horoscope to guide you. Where it says in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't rely upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. So if we're looking to the stars to guide us, guess what? That's an act of immorality, spiritual immorality, right? And he says this, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into a great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. In other words, throw her on a bed of sickness. In other words, he's going to bring trial into her life and to these people's lives to try to put a fire under them to get them to repent, all right? And he says this, those who commit adultery with her, in other words, her converts who get involved with this, he's going to do what? He's going to throw them into great tribulation. So just bring it up to where we live and breathe today in terms of, look, if we tolerate this kind of stuff, all right, and we get involved in this two-step of uh, trying to uh, look to our horoscopes and look to Jesus Christ, guess what? We're going to end up being left behind and going through this great tribulation period. Right, and unless they repent of their deeds. And 23, verse 23, and I will kill her children. In other words, any one of her converts, anyone who follows this example of this woman, I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one according to your deeds. In other words, he's not going to tolerate this. He's going to judge it wherever it's found. In verse 24, but I say to the rest of those who entire who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Now this is interesting to me. Five out of seven churches Jesus Christ has rebuked for. All right, only two churches he did not have rebuke for. That was Smyrna and Philadelphia, right? But never once did Jesus Christ say, hey, you better get out of that church and get over there to Smyrna or get over there to Philadelphia. He's saying, hey, man, you stay in your church. You bloom where you're planted, all right? I'm not going to put any further burdens on you. Now, if people want to leave their church for whatever reason, they may have a good reason, and God may be leading them out of their church. But uh, he's saying this, I want you to bloom where you're planted, Right? Look at the church today. They've got these mega churches. They've got uh, thousands, thousands, and thousands of people. As a matter of fact, I'm a small group minister for one of these mega churches. But all I'm saying is this. Uh, 
That doesn't necessarily mean that the churches are growing in leaps and bounds in this country today. What it really is an indication of is that people are just changing churches. They're just leaving one church and joining another. All right? It's not like there's a big revival going on, believe me. And all I'm saying is this. Jesus is saying, hey, man, stay where you're at. Okay, bloom where you're planted. I'm not going to put any further burdens on you. But he also said, these people that are involved in this kind of stuff, they call it the deep things of Satan. Whenever you get into a church that has secrecy to it, all right, Look at the Mormons. They've got all kinds of secret rituals and they've got all kinds of secret oaths. And the further up you get into this uh, religion, all right, in their temple, in their temple uh, secrecy, hey man, uh, you can rest assured it's not a God because everything Jesus Christ did was above board. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it was there was nothing secret about it. So whenever you have uh, secret society, secret rituals, uh, secret oaths, this type of thing, hey man, you can rest assured it's, it's of the devil. Right, and apparently this woman was teaching something that had a lot of secrecy to it, right? And then it says, "And I place no further burden on you." Verse twenty-five. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. All right. In other words, we got to endure, we got to persevere. In other words, the church, oh man, I got to hold fast. All right. Now, if God leads me out of this church tomorrow, fine. You know, that's not the issue here. The issue is hold fast. Mm-hmm. All right. That's what is what is good. Verse 26, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. Again, overcome, you know, hold fast, keep the deeds until the end, persevere, persevere, endure. How many times is he saying that in this one chapter, man? Mm-hmm. We have to persevere because there's so many people who are abdicating, who are just leaving the church, right? They're being seduced. They're going somewhere else. They're laying claim to a spirituality, but they're forsaking Christ. He's saying, hold fast. He says, keep my deeds, his deeds. You know, these people are out there with their social agenda, you know, and they're out there to promote all this social justice, social agendas, these social programs. You know, all those things are good and fine, but wait a minute. Are these deeds Christ deeds or are these just your own deeds to make yourself feel good about yourself? So he says, who keep my deeds until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. Now here's the thing. You know, when people get involved in any kind of our horoscopes are basically where they get involved in any kind of occultic practices or witchcraft or sorcery, this type of thing. It's usually be, there's a draw there. There's a seduction there because there's a, a power there, or at least the illusion of power. Well, Christ is saying this. You want power? I'll give you real power because he's saying here, to him I will give authority over the nations. You want power? I'll give you power, right? You'll, you'll be of charge because he said this, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That's what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19. He's going to come back and rule the nations with a rod of iron. Go back to Psalm 23. It says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What's the difference between a rod and a staff? Good. Good. The staff is basically direction. The staff is for leading. The rod, man, is, is for correction. I read a one situation where this one you lamb would not do what the shepherd told him. It would, it would always go off by itself. Always, 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 always. And what the guy did, he went over and took a rod and broke one of the legs of that sheep. And then he bound it all up. And then he nursed that sheep back to health. And then never, ever, ever did that sheep stray again. All right, that's the rod. That's the rod. He says, and he shall rule them with the rod of iron, as the vessels of potter are broken to pieces. In other words, iron is going to shatter these rebels, right? And as I also receive authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. Now, what's the morning star? Huh? Go back to the uh, last two chapters of the Book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is referred to as the morning star. 
So here's the thing. If I give you the morning star, guess what? I've given you a badge of authority. In other words, if a cop's pounding on your front door and says, open up in the name of the law, I mean, you just can't say, well, I don't know you. Who are you, man? I don't know who up. It doesn't matter who he is. It doesn't matter who we are. It's that badge of authority that's speaking, right? So when he says, I'm going to give you the morning th- star, that's the badge of your authority because that morning star points to Jesus Christ. All right? We are told that's his title, morning star. All right? Mm-hmm. Satan has a, a title too, star of the morning, son of the dawn. That was Lucifer. That's what Lucifer means. What Jesus Christ is referred to as the morning star, man. He's the first one, and he's the last one, right? That's that badge of authority. He, he says, as I have also received authority from my Father, I will give him a, the morning star. And in verse 29, last verse, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, you know, it's almost like, hey, we got ears, right? Our ears did not come out of a mud hole, believe me. They were created by God, designed by God, so we can hear. We, but we have to filter out what's being said. We have to discern what our mind's being said, and we've got to see the truth of what is being said. A lot of people, they just shut their ears. Well, when they don't want to hear something, this is what they do, right? All right? Now, I'm sitting here teaching what a lot of people don't want to hear, all right? But got to emphasize to people, you know what? What I'm teaching here is not my message, all right? Now, you don't want to hear the message. Don't take it out on the messenger because you don't like it because it's not my message. It's God's message, and we have to open our ears. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear, right? He said, Christ said that eight times in the Gospels. He's saying that eight times here in the book of Revelation, and that's the importance he puts upon it. Hey, man, we've got to listen to God. And in, the, in this whole world full of confusion and all these different voices clamoring to be heard, we really have to really focus in like a laser beam on Jesus Christ and his word if we're going to hear what he's saying, right? Anybody want to have any add or share? I'm so far over.